turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Jenna Ellis Show, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There has never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Visit LegacyPMInvestments.com. That's LegacyPMInvestments.com. As a constitutional law attorney, former senior legal advisor and personal counsel to President Donald J. Trump, Jenna Ellis believes in the rule of law and the importance of integrity in our elections. And she's ready to tackle the big cultural and legal issues facing America. This is The Jenna Ellis Show. Here is your host, Jenna Ellis. Legacy Precious Metals is the company that I trust to give you good and patient counsel for investing in your retirement. The Biden administration has caused a financial crisis and they have no clue how to fix it. Oil prices have skyrocketed and when oil prices go up, not only do your expenses go up, but the cost of transportation and shipping spikes, leading the prices of goods to rise. And when and we are already seeing record inflation. That's the last thing that we need. Our economy is in trouble and you need to take steps to protect yourself. If all your money is tied up in stocks, bonds, and traditional markets, you may be vulnerable. So gold is one of the very best ways to protect your retirement. No matter what happens, you own your own gold. It's real, it's physical, and it's always been valuable since the dawn of time. Call Legacy Precious Metals today at 866-528-1903 or visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com. That's LegacyPMInvestments.com where you can download the free investor's guide. You can also go to my Facebook page, Jenna Ellis. I am a public figure on Facebook and I just posted yesterday a really great interview with the president of Legacy Precious Metals who is discussing why you need to start your retirement account even if you're in your 20s or 30s. There is always a great time to protect your retirement and invest just like you want to protect your health over the long term. So go to Legacy Precious Metals at LegacyPMInvestments.com or call 866-528-1903. So this story has been brewing for a while where I know all of you have heard about this UPenn swimmer who is a transgender woman named Leah Thomas, who is a biological male who identifies as a woman and therefore participates in swimming uh, under women's sports and has been winning and uh, obviously has an advantage being a biological male. So my friend Bill Bach, who is an attorney and actually uh, was part of uh, the litigation team that enforced the um, the rules for the IOC, the um, International Olympic Committee for uh, doping, and has a really fascinating take on the testosterone level difference and how that impacts sports and um, applying that to women's sports and this whole narrative and perspective surrounding transgender athletes. He's going to be joining me in a little bit for an interview on that. And I think that's an incredibly important perspective as you're going to see through uh, our discussion, because when we're talking about the cultural narrative surrounding women's sports and the transgender issue, a lot of people just talk about fairness, meaning the gender identity and the sexual orientation of the of uh, transgender individuals. And what's what's fascinating about uh, the Leah Thomas perspective is there was actually a headline in Daily Mail UK that the fellow athletes on the women's swim team with Leah Thomas said, we're really uncomfortable in our locker room because apparently Thomas did not uh, actually cover the male genitals. And so the headline was uh, the, what was it, her male genitals, which how does that even make sense, right? Because her, of course, they're trying to use Uh, the transgender and preferred pronouns. So now in the space of our absurd culture, you can actually have phrasing 
that is her male genitals. How, how does that concept even make sense? Well, it doesn't. And so when we talk about these issues, often we're focused on ridiculous, counterintuitive, counterreality narratives like that that the left is trying to push. And their counter to this is, well, we need to make everybody feel loved and accepted for who they are. And it's fair for them to be able to participate on the team that they identify with in terms of their gender. And we get caught up in all of the gender identity conversation when we're not actually talking about the science. And we do in terms of just the the biology of the individual. But what I think is fascinating about Bill Bach's perspective is actually talking about the advantages of sports and how uh, talking about testosterone, for example, that of course is a is a male hormone, um, how that is advantageous to biologically male athletes. And if a biologically female athlete were to take, for example, testosterone supplements or injections, that would be considered doping. And so we need to put this not only back in the framework of reality, but we also need to have conversations about what does fairness mean? When we talk about fairness, when we talk about how we measure um, an individual's category for participation, how do we measure winning in sports for things that are competitive like uh, swimming that is just based on time, period. It's a clock. It's not a judge. This isn't gymnastics or figure skating where you have judges that interpret according to really their bias, what they think about creativity or artistic uh, components. This is surely about your ability to cross the finish line first. So when we're talking about running, swimming, any of these timed events, there is a cutoff that the way that you measure who wins in these types of sporting events is not subjective at all. So we have to have the conversations that return to reality. But even broader than that, we also have to think about why are we even having these conversations? There are so many people that look at these kinds of headlines uh, that say her male genitals, right? And they're going, how in 2022 are we even talking about this? How are we having these conversations that the left is claiming we're bigoted and we're transphobic and we don't care about people's feelings and all of these ways that they attack us? And it puts people on the defensive. And even more broadly to this conversation, we have to look at how we got here. And Andrew Breitbart is very famous for saying that politics is downstream from culture. And Christians and conservatives absolutely have to be engaged in culture to be able to see where we're going with politics. Um, I was telling a friend of mine earlier this week that I watched the show The West Wing. Probably a lot of you watched that. Uh, for the first time, actually, only about five years ago. So this was much later uh, after it was already off air. And, you know, I binge watched it, obviously, so I could, you know, watch all like six or seven seasons um, right back to back. And the thing that was most fascinating to me was seeing how the writers of this incredibly well-scripted show were putting in and weaving in a progressive narrative and arguing their narrative of what they wanted to match with reality and um, and what we're actually doing in politics, not just an entertainment show. They were weaving this in and laying the groundwork and laying the foundation for the arguments that they wanted to have in politics. They were doing that in the cultural narrative. And we're seeing that in the culture so much when we see the Hollywood movies and the TV shows that now have to have a... A, uh, a gender queer character or, you know, it used to be you have to have um, the gay character because there has to be representation. And we've seen that, that there has to be representation of these minority communities in like every show because they don't want to exclude or be offensive to these categories. And so it's become this normative, uh, cyclical uh, kind of narrative where they're trying on purpose through entertainment to normalize in our understanding and construct of reality that these types of characters are just as prevalent 
in reality and in real life as they are in this entertainment and this TV show. So if you go back and you look at hugely successful popular shows like The West Wing, like Grey's Anatomy, for example, um, you know, some of these shows that have lived on in infamy, they have, um, you know, a ton of quotes, um, you know, friends back in the day, um, you know, a lot of these shows that whether they were drama or comedy or, uh, or you know, whatever their, their, their target um, demographic is, the point of placement and it's not just product placement. We all know what that is. This is more narrative placement in the shows. You can see where they're trying to go in entertainment and how they're trying to push that then into reality. And they're trying to put this propaganda out there so that when bills like women's sports bills uh, come up and people are saying, no, biological women should only participate in women's sports we will have be, become so conditioned to assuming that these transgender characters live and exist in such prolific numbers that, of course, we need to accept them. And so it becomes this battleground and this ideological battleground. And we can see that the entertainment industry and Hollywood is using everything that we watch and consume in the media to push these narratives. And a lot of Christians and conservatives push back on this by saying, you know what, I don't even watch that trash. I don't watch any of these shows because they are so evil. And, and I respect that, and that's totally true. I, however, take the, as an adult, take the opposite view, where I watch this to be informed as to what their narrative is going to suggest. And I think it's important not only to have pop culture references um, to understand what is, you know, cool to the college students right now, for example, or what is cool to the mainstream media, what's trending on Twitter, um, but to understand where the left is going with their narratives. Now, of course, that is different as an informed adult that can actually uh, critically analyze what's going on in a storyline rather than, for example, a teenager just watching Grey's Anatomy. Um, so obviously, when you're talking about impressionable young kids, and even when you're talking about impressionable teenagers or college students, you have to have constructive criticism, ask and answer questions based on the biblical worldview, but also invite students to ask those questions. Because if you don't give them critical thinking analysis, then they're going to go with the analysis and the information that is provided by the culture that does address these topics. And this is why the church, why Christian colleges, why Christians in general need to not be afraid to address these types of topics head on and not just from a an overtly critical perspective like, you know, um, oh my gosh, the, the entertainment world is so disgusting. And that comes across as very pious a lot of times. And you're not really making an argument in that statement. You're simply condemning the entire category overall instead of having a critical analysis. And so, for example, I was um, earlier this morning um, in preparing for the for this podcast and, you know, kind of this topic, I came across this article and some of you um, may have watched Sex in the City. Um, I've watched that show. I'm um, totally a fan of the fashion, but the storylines, if you go back to when Sex in the City originally aired, you can see the propaganda and the narrative that they are trying to push way back when that they've been successful at. And this new iteration of Sex and the City um, that is, you know, and, and it's called And Just Like That. Um, so it's like their new We're Now 50 and Fabulous kind of thing. Um, they're trying to take these same characters and move them forward. You're seeing the exact same type of show that is pushing the envelope for the progressive narrative. And so as I was reading the spoiler of, because um, I, I don't even have time to watch this show right now, but I want to be informed, um, and I probably will go back and watch it. Um, I was reading the, the spoiler from like E telling, you know, what is the storyline? And one of the characters whose name is Charlotte York, um, she's the one who is the more prim and pious one, even though, of course, she was um, you know, very worldly, and and it's kind of funny um, how they try to make her character look like she's so prudish, which comparatively to what uh, actual Christian worldview thought informs us, um, she's totally none of that. 
But this goes on to say, so Charlotte York is the only one of the core friends of four not having any major life-changing moments in the finale. The proud mom works overtime, trying to give her child Rock, played by Alexa Swinton, apparently, a quote-unquote they mitzvah, complete with a trans rabbi, an insanely delicious-looking candy bar, and lots of LGBTQ plus pride. Yes, a they mitzvah. So this very uh, Jewish, very religious family, because in the original storyline, um, Charlotte, who was a staunch uh, Protestant evangelical, basically, um, she converted to Judaism to be with her husband. So they are religious, and they're the only religious family in this entire narrative. And she wants to have the traditional family, you know, has kids, has a husband. She's a proud mom. But now they give her a genderqueer, non-binary child, who, of course, she's supporting, right? So her child, Rock, which is a non-binary name, is now apparently identifying with preferred pronouns as they. So they're giving this child, Rock, a they mitzvah. And a trans rabbi and lots of LGBTQ plus pride in a Jewish family. This is crazy. So the article goes on to say, but Rock isn't interested in the fanfare. They, meaning Rock, tries to explain, quote, I don't want to be labeled as anything, not as a girl or boy or non-binary, a Jew, a Christian, Muslim, or even a New Yorker. I'm only 13. Can't I just be me? So you can see where this is going. We have to now have characters in the entertainment world that even as overtly religious as this character's narrative is written, how she sacrifices her own religious upbringing to be with her husband, converts to Judaism, now has to be the proud mom that has a non-binary child who is 13. And I'm assuming this is a... um, this is a biological female child uh, based on this. And, and and again, I haven't watched this series, but if I recall it from the original Sex in the City um, episodes, I think that this is the adopted female um, child that she and her husband had. So Rock is now just a 13-year-old, and the overtly religious parents have to bend over backwards and support a 13-year-old minor who wants to go by rock and have a they mitzvah with a trans rabbi. And all of us, of course, can be disgusted by this, and we should be. But consider the average person watching this who is so moved by the emotion and who doesn't see the conflict between the Jewish faith and buying into the trans narrative. And even some of the pictures that were included in this article showed um, Jews that were, um, you know, wearing the traditional uh, Jewish garb with the pride flag. And it's on purpose blurring the lines. And even beyond the obvious here, the goal ultimately of these non-binary, genderqueer blurring the lines is that they're trying to remain undefined and trying to have no limit. You've probably heard in life coaching and, you know, the Hallmark greeting cards and stuff, you know, you're limitless. You can do whatever you want. The sky's the limit, you know, that those kinds of um, motivational speaking. Those kinds of, and, and there's, not, you know, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but what the left is trying to do is to remove any limitation or viable measurement on human biology, human identity, and human sexuality, and ultimately human beings. And when we remove limits on anything, on any physical object, whether it is the human body or whether it is, you know, my coffee cup that's sitting here, we can't define the scope 
of a physical object or even philosophically an idea without defined limits. Because the limitation of my coffee cup sitting here has to be measurable. Otherwise, this object would not exist exclusively in and of itself. And we know this inherently because I know that my coffee cup has limits because when I pour my coffee, I don't pour it over the brim. Otherwise, it'll be a disaster in my kitchen and the coffee will spill over. I know that there are limits to what my coffee cup as a coffee cup uh, can contain. And also, I know and recognize that it is a coffee cup because of its limits, its contours, the shape, the purpose for which it was designed, how we use it. And anybody can readily identify it as a coffee cup. Now, in a different language, is it called coffee cup? No, that's the label that we in the English language have put onto coffee cup. But we all know the meaning of that term because we're describing a physical object and we're describing reality using labels and terms that reflect reality. And this is where language is so meaningful and important to not manipulate. Because if I was not able to describe the limitations or identify this particular physical object, then I can't meaningfully communicate. And reality becomes a blur. And that's what the left is trying to do with human beings. Our physical bodies have limits. And when we talk about blurring the lines and the limitations, then we can't define what a human being is. We can't define the gender of a human body based on biology. It's this murky orientation of what the physical mind of the person believes or feels. And feelings have no objective limits in reality. It's not measurable. And that's what the left is trying to do. And so when they say, you know, oh, we're being objectified or you aren't uh, being, we, we, you're not including us. You, you are trying to say, you're trying to put limitations on me and labels are limiting. I mean, consider what they have this 13 year old saying, I don't want to be labeled as anything, not as a girl or boy or non-binary, a Jew, Christian, Muslim, or even a New Yorker. I'm only 13. Can't I just be me? Well, what does me mean? What is just being you? If they don't want to be labeled as anything, what that actually means is they don't want to be defined as a human being that actually reflects genuine biological reality. The, the scope of what defines anything is measured by the limitations. And we see that even in law. For example, when we say constitutional versus unconstitutional, we're saying there is a measurement and a limit and a standard of what it what fits within the definition and the label of being constitutional. Whatever is outside of those barriers, those contours, those margins does not comply with the Constitution. And we have to have limits. But consider how the left is already using that in other types of debates, like abortion. When they're saying, my body, my choice, there's a lot of great pro-life memes out there saying, this is your body, pointing to the mother, and this is someone else's body, pointing to the unborn child. What is that doing? It's establishing limits, saying the limitation of your body ends where the limitation of the child's body begins physically. We can label mother, child in that picture because of the express limits and the express definition of where one thing stops and another begins. But the entire scope of the LGBT movement in this is not just because they want to have this perverted notion of human sexuality, and it is, it is that, and I'm not diminishing that at all. We've talked a lot on the show about that. But I want to go beyond that in this conversation because of how expressly prolific 
it's become in entertainment. And this is where, in reading this particular um, Sex in the City episode, having a 13-year-old who goes by they, not even wanting to be defined as a discrete form of human being, this person, Rock, says, I don't want to be labeled. Well, everything has to be labeled in order to have discrete meaning and to understand and communicate with each other, recognizing the reality to which we are presented. And we have to be able to measure, to discreetly define, and to label terms and meanings that have a relative marker that reflects reality. And so terms don't mean anything if we apply them in ways that don't actually reflect reality. If I call my coffee cup a car, people would laugh because the term car has inherent meaning in the English language that is synonymous with a genuine object in reality. And that's true for everything in our physical universe. And it's not, you know, objectifying, quote unquote, in a in the way that the left uses that term of, um, you know, objectifying your, your, there's no spiritual component to the physical world or human beings are only their bodies um, as objects. But our physical bodies are absolutely just as much part of us as our spiritual spirit and soul. And my friend Nancy Piercy, who I'd love to get back on this show, um, has a wonderful book about this called Love Thy Body. And that book articulates this concept so well, where she says we can't separate how we feel in the spiritual realm and our spiritual selves. We cannot separate that from our physical bodies and live in this sort of dualistic uh reality. And to say that in in this view of humanity, that our physical bodies don't have inherent meaning and definition and limits. And this is completely contrasted with the truth of reality that the word of God presents, which is that God created us male and female. This isn't about just what we were assigned at birth. This is about what we observe to be true at birth. So I don't like the term assigned because that implies that the doctor who makes this observation or a parent who you know looks at their child and can tell the gender based on their body, uh, that somehow we have choice and we have discretion in that observation. When I go out and I observe that today it is raining, that is an observation and a declaration that reflects reality. I'm, I don't have any discretion over the weather patterns. I can't just go and assign that today it's raining. No, I'm observing that. And that is all, it brings us full circle to the science, right? Because science used to be about making observations and making sure that the scientific method uh, was compatible with reality, that you don't break your theories because they don't work. But the left and the progressive entire point is to destroy all of these barriers that are truly absolutely immovable and to break this down and think that we can reconstruct our own reality in our own image, which is original sin, that man wants to be God. We want to say we don't want to be defined and labeled. That is saying that what they're having this 13-year-old girl say in this show is, I don't want to be defined by the reality that God chose for me. I do not want to acknowledge that I don't have control over my own universe. Do we have some discretion in some decisions? Yes. But other things, we don't have discretion. I don't have discretion in the year I was born, where I was born, who my parents are, uh, my, my gender, what my body looks like. I mean, you know, sure, you can change some things. You can dye your hair. You can have plastic surgery. But overall, I mean, my body and my DNA is 
what God gave me. And I can't change that. But the left is wanting to take these terms and say it's the labels that are wrong and it's the labels that are objectifying instead of saying this is a coffee cup and we're calling it a coffee cup because in the English language the term coffee cup matches the reality of what this physical object actually is in the scientific biological presence of reality and that needs to be our explanation and motivation for combating this entire narrative from the LGBTQ left. And when we talk about things like women's sports, when we talk about things like, no, I'm not going to call someone by their preferred pronouns. I'm going to have the pronoun match the biological reality. You don't get to select that. Um, If you want to speak in another language, they have terms in other languages that match gendered terms. And so will I call someone by their given name? Sure. That's not a false statement that doesn't match reality. If if this transgender swimmer wants to go by Leah Thomas, fine by me. But I refuse to, to call a male person her because that doesn't match reality. And I will not engage in their artificial construct and their delusion by saying that you can choose your own gender, you can choose your own pronouns, and you can choose to be non-binary or genderqueer or go by they, them, or you know any of the preferred pronouns. Pronouns in any language match reality of the physical human being. And I think we need to, as conservatives, and especially as Christians, be very, very concerned about what is being broadcast right now in in the entertainment world, where things like this, having a 13-year-old tell Jewish parents to throw her a they mitzvah, and I don't want to be labeled by anything, can't I just be me? We need to reject that. But we also need to know that it exists so that we can push back and reject that. So I would encourage you, insofar as you have time and you can, don't just condemn the entertainment industry as a broad category. Understand what they're doing and why that culture is going to be ultimately downstream from the next political narrative. Because if we're going to engage in politics at all and be successful... We have to know what is being normalized in society, why it's being normalized, and we need to have rational arguments pushing back and saying, no, discrete terms for discrete objects and limitations and labels are actually good things. That helps us better understand the reality to which we're presented. And we are not going to compromise on any of these terms. We should have never, as Christians, compromised on the definition and the discrete term marriage. Marriage does not describe any other relationship besides one man, biological man, one biological woman. Having a thruple, having uh, two biological women, having, you know, the they, them, and the he, her, And whatever, that does not describe a marriage discreetly. Terms matter, and we have to fight for terms. Otherwise, we can't even engage in meaningful debate because we've lost the ability to even converse. We have lost the language. And language is everything to understanding. Consider when you think about something philosophically and you are considering understanding in your mind, you attach meaning and understanding two words. You think if you are, if English is your first language, you think in English. Some of my friends who, you know, English is their second language, they may converse with me in English, but their thoughts and their dreams even are in a different language. But we attach language to reality in order to communicate concepts. If we lose language, then we will lose these arguments and we will lose the ability to effectively advocate for women's sports and so many other things because we have lost the debate before it already started. 
So we're going to turn now to my interview with my friend uh, Bill Bach and talk about these types of definitions in the world of uh, sports and anti-doping and his litigation. I think you're going to find it fascinating. Um, So let's try to more broadly understand these debates and not just debate on the playing field that the left wants to define for us, because I promise you, we will always be at a disadvantage when we do that. I want to give you a great offer from MyPillow. Using the promo code Jenna, go to MyPillow.com, click on the new radio listener special, and get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the six-piece towel set, which is two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths, made in the USA, soft yet very absorbent. I have the sage green set. I love it. Regularly $109.99, now only $39.99, but you have to use the promo code Jenna, call 1-800-564-8475 or go to mypillow.com, click on the new radio listener specials and enter the promo code Jenna. That's J-E-N-N-A. All right. So joining me now is one of my very good friends who is an amazing, excellent lawyer. And I wanted to have on this show to, uh, to talk about another really interesting and fascinating angle of the whole uh, transgender sports issue. So Bill Bach, and uh, thanks so much for joining me. And you actually uh, headed up the litigation on uh, some of the anti-doping for the United States government and for um, the Olympics. And so talk a little bit about your background and experience uh, with some of the anti-doping. Sure. uh, Thank you very much, Jenna. It's good to be with you today. Um, I I have been involved representing athletes in, in Olympic sport for about the last 25, 30 years. Um, the last 14 years, from 2007 to 2021, I was the general counsel for the United States Anti-Doping Agency, and they do all the drug testing for Olympic sport in the United States. So our job was to keep a level playing field, uh, to ensure that, that sport was was fair and just and and um, so my responsibilities included uh, arbitrations over the issues of the use of performance-enhancing drugs like testosterone in sport, um, and investigations of uh, breaches of the rules. And some of the, the cases that we handled were the, the Bay Area Laboratory Cooperative, the Balco case that involved Marion Jones and Tim Montgomery and others, uh, the Lance Armstrong cycling investigation uh, where he was uh, required to give up his seven Tour de France uh, titles. And um, so that that's a, a little bit of my background in Olympic sport. Hmm. So this is fascinating because a lot of the, uh, the, I guess, discussion and a lot of the conversation has been around this uh, diversity and inclusion. And when we're talking about someone like, uh, you know, the UPenn swimmer who is um, a biological male has now transitioned, says that he is a woman and is participating in women's sports. A lot of the conversation has been around uh, the self-identification, the difference between sex and gender, what qualifies a woman. And what I'm seeing lacking in uh, the conversation, other than the obviously the biological uh, difference between a male versus a female is this kind of understanding of the the chemical enhancement that biological males have over women and how that changes the nature of sports. And so when we're talking about supplements like testosterone, I mean, it's my understanding, like if a biological female at the Olympics were to take testosterone, that would actually be an illegal uh, doping use, right? So how how is this in any way comparable, and why aren't we having these types of broader conversations when we're contemplating transgender participation in sports? Um, it's a great question, Jenna. I, I, I think part of the answer sometimes is that the loudest voice in the room wins. Um, and, and sometimes while we talk about following the science, um, we don't tend to do that. And, um, you know, maybe in, in this respect, lawyers can be part of the problem because um, there, there is a lot of litigiousness in sports. And sometimes I think uh, sport governing bodies can, can uh, suffer from a bit of a lack of, of courage. Um, and, and the group that is really being left out here are the biologically female athletes, female 
athletes, women athletes, are being severely disadvantaged because um, we know in, on the anti-doping side of things that there's no more powerful performance enhancer than testosterone. And the level of testosterone um, produced by a biological male is, is many, many times that that is produced in, in a female. Um, and and it's, it's not a transient effect. Testosterone has a, 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 a lifelong effect on the development of musculature um, and, and just overall strength that is, is not lost um, even when testosterone suppressant drugs are taken. And part of the approach in sport has been to allow transgender participation of um, biologically uh, male athletes uh, but who have identified as female. Uh, they've been sometimes allowed to participate after taking testosterone suppression. That doesn't address the, the lifelong changes that come about to one's uh, physique and, and performance enhancement that's gained simply from having grown up as a male. So where are these cases uh, right now when you're talking, I mean, there's been a lot of precedent and you mentioned a couple of the cases. I think probably most of my listeners are at least familiar with Lance Armstrong. I mean, you know, that was a, a really worldwide case of, of what happened there. But where is uh, the bright line rule um, in terms of anti-doping right now and how um, or if is, is the law changing on this particular issue related to transgender sports and things like testosterone? Well, well, the, the the sad thing about it is that we've just we've drawn these categories of, of, of doping um, or transgender participation in sport, and we've we've drawn a, a line between them. And and so while you couldn't take testosterone to get up to a level of almost four or five times the the testosterone level of the average female um, in in sport. You couldn't do that through taking testosterone, but you can do that through changing your gender identity. Hmm. So um, it's a loophole, basically. It, it is absolutely uh, a legally defined loophole um, that is that really, I believe, threatens to destroy uh, females and uh, sport participation. So when you're looking at yeah. some of this legislation, like um, what Christy Nome is putting forward, I was actually very disappointed that she uh, vetoed the prior uh, protection of women's sports. Uh, is this being addressed in any of the legislation that you've, uh, you've seen across the country, this particular argument about anti-doping and testosterone? Primarily, the, the legislation that's uh, going forward on a state-by-state -state basis is affecting high school sports. Um, and and there's, there's so far not been a comprehensive effort to address uh, collegiate sport and, and sport at the Olympic level. There are rules in place. Um, they aren't very effective at leveling the playing field, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And, and, and we're actually seeing a retrogression in those rules. The, the IOC adopted a new framework uh, for, for going forward where they now wholly subscribe to the idea that, that gender is fluid and one can choose their gender and, and have included preferences uh, for that, that for uh, allowing somebody to, to change their gender and, and will make it legally very difficult to keep the playing field level. Hmm. Uh, so, so, and, so how do they get away with, and, and, you know, if I can ask you this question, how do they get away with in the rules um, the inequality that's there that if you change your gender identity, then it's okay to use these performance-enhancing drugs uh, and if you go and abide by your biologically assigned, and I hate to you know commandeer their language, but that's what they call as your biologically assigned gender, then females who still identify as females can't use the same levels of doping. How do they get around any sort of issue of equality there if that's really what everybody's concerned with? They talk a lot about equality in the rules. They, they actually talk about a term of equity. 
uh, which is really undefined. Mm -hmm. And they talk about fairness, um, but 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 it doesn't work out that way because uh, you simply can't um, you can't turn back the biological clock. And, and once somebody has gone through puberty as a male, they're going to have lifelong physiological differences that that make them a, a, a more capable faster stronger athlete generally uh, than than most female athletes and so you're going to have uh, athletes that all of a sudden uh, like uh, the pin swimmer mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. you're going to have them all of a sudden go from from being a, uh, a not an elite level athlete to becoming uh, on the male side where he competed for three years to when he transferred to becoming a female uh, now he uh, or Leah Thomas uh, the trans uh, female athlete is a um, is has set 10 records at Penn in, in one season and has won numerous meets um, so that's going to continue to happen and obviously very that's very discouraging to to girls but what ought to be, ought to happen is that we ought to have sports organizations that have the courage to confront this issue directly mm -hmm. but unfortunately we haven't seen that we've seen the NCAA uh, adopt new rules which are not really rules because they purport to defer to the uh, sport national governing body uh, in each sport and and they know that, that those national governing bodies don't have rules. And, and so what happened in the sport of swimming was just a week ago, on January 19th, the NCAA said that they adopted this new procedure and that, that swimming would be governed by the rules of USA Swimming. USA Swimming issued a press release the next day that basically said, we don't have any rules. We're waiting on the International Federation to develop the rules. And then we'll follow those rules when the International um, Federation develops them. So it's a classic game of pass the buck. Mm -hmm. and, and the group that is being hurt are female athletes. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. the, the group that is advantaged are those that are the loudest in the room, screaming for their rights, but not as concerned about the rights of others. Yeah, and so as we're looking at the difference between uh, high school sports, college sports, and then of course on um, you know the Olympic or elite uh, athlete level, is there a difference in the national versus international conversation among the lawyers? Um, is there a difference between maybe the NCAA, who is kind of going along with this woke partisanship that is unfortunately the America culture right now, versus? Uh, the Olympic Committee, who of course has uh, influence from all of the participants of the countries. And, you know, I was looking at uh, the headlines the other day about this new non-binary figure skater that's going to uh, to be in the Olympics that are coming up in just a few weeks and how uh, the, the Olympic Twitter account is openly celebrating this and, you know, a few of those other things. Is there a difference in the conversation in the international level, is there hope there, or are you seeing other countries as well kind of bowing to this uh, ridiculous identity sort of a definition? Yeah, and, and the IOC has bought in to the mm -hmm. um, gender identity idea, the idea that one can choose their own gender and that we should respect that. And, and, um, and, and so wow. where that becomes problematic, obviously, is where it causes competitive inequity and inequality and you know we've the the categories of male and female athletes have worked quite well for a long period of time and to abandon those categories now is going to have uh, tremendous consequences mm -hmm. for a lot of young women um, and, and it's not that trans athletes shouldn't participate in sport uh, I know Jenna you you've participate in sport um, all of us regardless of our age we we enjoy athletics of, of one sort or another and we should mm -hmm. and and every human being should and that includes trans athletes but but 
one's choice to redefine themselves should not eliminate the, the choices the, um, and the opportunities of a whole class of, of athletes, which is what's happening mm -hmm. right now. There are people that are standing up, but, but unfortunately they don't tend to be in positions to make the decision. Which, which unfortunately always seems to be the case, right? The people who are actually willing to stand up don't necessarily have the power or the authority uh, to do anything about it. But in terms of the litigation arounding, around this, I know um, some of our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom are representing uh, some of the female athletes um, in the collegiate level that are challenging uh, the, the transgender athletes' participation. Uh, where do you see the law going? What should be the solution here to give uh, the ability? And I think you're right that um, every person, every human being should be able to participate in sports. But what is actually fair? What is actually equitable? Um, like you said, male and female categories have worked really well until we started finding all of these loopholes. So what should be the bright line standard? Where should the law go from here? Yeah. Well, well, certainly Alliance Defending Freedom has done tremendous work in this area. And, and I think that the, the good thing uh, about our legal system is that we traditionally have uh, recognized uh, rights of groups to prevent discrimination. And, and to a degree, this is, this is a, a very di discriminatory situation towards women because women are the ones that are being harmed here and, and women are the group that has have had traditionally fewer opportunities in sport. Title IX, a federal statute, was enacted to try to, to bring about more of a balance in, in sport. And just as we're getting close to seeing more balance, now this issue threatens women's sport once again. Um, so I think Alliance Defending Freedom and many other, uh, even what you're seeing are a lot of Olympic athletes that, that, and a lot of females, but also male Olympic athletes that are saying, you know, this isn't right. And they understand what it's like to, to line up on the starting block um, next to somebody that they think might be doping. That is, it has a chemical, you know, structural advantage um, that they've gained unfairly. And, and so this issue is, is not that different. Um, it may be that those uh, the, the trans athletes did not intend to cheat, do, are not trying to cheat. Um, at the same time, they have a structural ad advantage that disadvantages mm -hmm. female athletes. Athletes understand that. I think yeah. you'll see a movement of athletes that are going to insist on, on fairness and equality. Yeah, it's interesting to me that even Caitlyn Jenner, who is uh, obviously was a male athlete uh, under Bruce Jenner, you know, and, uh, and, and obviously won the gold medal, participated in the Olympics, um, has now come out as Caitlyn Jenner uh, and, and is actually against trans athletes' participation in women's sports for those distinctive advantages and is someone who uh, both, I think, you know, the media and the culture at large have recognized uh, the sympathy of Caitlyn toward the uh, transgender movement, obviously, and is a participant, but also to have someone like that come out and stand up um, against trans participation. And so some people have said or have floated the idea of maybe just having a trans uh, participation category and a whole separate category. So you have male, female, and then trans. Um, I don't particularly see that that's necessarily helpful. I mean, at what point then do people who maybe can't make it in their own category that they would otherwise have to participate in, then somehow they just get a new category because they say, hey, I'm going to identify as a certain way. And so somehow now they get a whole separate category that they have um, an advantage in actually winning and competing. But then other people would say, well, that uh, that then at least eliminates the unfair aspect toward uh, biologically female still identifying as female categories. So do you think that there's any merit to that being a solution? Um, I, I think one of the issues in sport has been kind of an equa uh, a resources issue, mm -hmm. um, and and so and that's why uh, women have faced uh, problems in terms of having the same sort of opportunities as, as men. There are limited resources, mm -hmm. 
So and viewership interest, like, frankly. I mean, you know, there are some like, that? you know, I wouldn't watch a woman's football team. <laughs> I just think that would be boring. You know, and you see the differences between, you know, WNBA versus the regular NBA. There's a viewership issue. And that's fair. That's a, you know, people can yeah. choose what they want to watch, too. And, and, and part of that, you know, and, and that is that is the case. And certainly, you know, 80 percent of the funding in sport goes to, to men's sport and 80 and, percent and of the revenue is generated by men's sport. And, and that's part of the reason why. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to fund a third category is probably going to diminish opportunities more than it's going to increase opportunities. That doesn't mean that that if somebody wants to start a trans athlete league, they shouldn't be free to do that. That's ab- that would absolutely mm-hmm. be fine. But but trying to mandate that there be a third category, I think would would um, adversely impact mm-hmm. everyone. And yeah. so so then you know so with that, and I think that that actually is a is a brilliant argument. I mean, it's not one that is just based on. Uh, what should we do in terms of equality, but in terms of resource? And frankly, who's going to watch a, you know, a trans league? I don't think that we'll have a lot of athlete participation. We're not even seeing that. You know, it's it's um, somewhere some statistics have shown that it's less than 3% of the population. And now suddenly we have to, you know, pretend that there's always, um, you know, trans uh, inclusion and representation in literally everything we do, including entertainment and so forth. Um, but it probably just wouldn't get um, and generate the kind of revenue that other sports uh, leagues do, and particularly the men. Um, but so what should the solution then be in terms of a bright line standard of um, of how we can truly define fairness, how we can truly define, you know, making sure that um, other people's rights to participate aren't diminished based on trans athletes' participation like women, um, but actually have a bright line standard that's judicially cognizable and is actually a good bright line rule. Yeah, well, you know, the, the male and female categories, like I said, have, are, are the traditional categories that have been in use for decades and and that is really i mean i mean uh at birth the 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 bright line standard is is established Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um and i think that maintaining that standard makes imminent sense good sense and and um Mm -hmm. is is the way forward um and if if somebody is uh, decides that they want to use medical means to try to, um, in their terminology, transition their gender, then they, they can do that, but they still have to compete in the category in which they were born. I think that ultimately becomes the, the, the fairest approach. Hmm. Now, you will, the, the, the prior IOC approach was to, to regulate on the basis of testosterone levels. Um, that is a kind of secondary approach that is, I think, more fair than kind of just opening it up with, with rules that, that allow each sport to determine without any sort of objective standards um, what, the, what the lines are going to be. Hmm. Um, and and they, had, they had a scientific group that tried to establish um, a limits on testosterone levels um, I think it was it was a, a project that a bit was doomed to, to, to failure um, because uh, even the limits that they established had uh, transgender athletes able to compete at, at four to five times the level of testosterone of the average female. Hmm. So they trans athletes had an advantage under under that system. Unfortunately, though. Um, that that system uh, has been jettisoned for a more supposedly inclusive system, which is has no bright lines and leaves it up to each sport, mm-hmm. and um, will mean tremendous confusion within Olympic sport over the yeah. next five to ten years. And unpredictability, and also allegations probably of discrimination, depending on which one is more quote unquote accommodating. 
uh, versus others. And uh, so are there any any cases uh, beyond the ones that we've already discussed that, you know, ADF is uh, representing some athletes at the collegiate level? Are there any other cases uh, that we should be aware of to follow in terms of uh, this particular transgender athlete issue? I think one of the interesting issues, obviously in Olympic sport, international sport, um, which is where I spent most of my life, uh, that's controlled by the International Olympic Committee. And they have kind of a monopoly, uh, they and the international federations, over sport internationally. And so what they do is tremendously influential here, but around the world. And there is a legal body in Switzerland called the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And the the IOC regulations that have been most recently uh, proposed um, state that trans athletes um, should be able to have challenges to the rules that are put in place um, to ensure their participation, but they don't appear to give the same right um, to challenge the fairness of the rules to female athletes, mm. to, to uh, non-trans athletes that are, by, are disadvantaged by the rules. So I think mm. what may end up happening is that there will be a, a challenge before the Court of Arbitration of Sport as to, to whether or not athletes that aren't transist don't want to change, they want to stay in their category, particularly female athletes, can they challenge rules that are not fair to them that allow trans athlete participation? I think that'll be interesting to see. Yeah. And um, if that, if if the court of arbitration for sport were to say no, you cannot challenge those rules, then it's going to 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 lock female athletes into a disadvantaged position, not only mm-hmm. on the playing field but legally. Yeah, and this is where for all of the listeners, I mean, this is why our U.S. Constitution has built in a lot of these protections, like equal protection, and being able to say that you know anyone should be able to petition uh, the government, for example, for redress. But you don't see those same protections in every kind of uh, legal body or forum that might be uh, render an arbitration decision. And so uh, some of these things, it would seem uh, very offensive to our notions as Americans of fairness and justice and equity uh, to even contemplate that females wouldn't be able to challenge the rules, but transgender athletes would, and that there is some sort of uh, differentiation between those. Uh, But it's a good lesson of why our constitution and why our rule of law and our American jurisprudential process um, is actually, I think, one of the best in the world, because other types of forums don't allow some of those same uh, balances and some of those same balance of the equities. So uh, that's going to be really interesting and fascinating. And so, um, so Bill Bach, just in the last couple minutes that I have with you here. Um, So how long do you think that uh, if this kind of truly discrimination against women's sports is allowed to proceed, um, do you think that we're going to see women just fall out of the sport? I mean, how, how long are we going to see this kind of fever pitch before we reach a point that it's going to have to be uh, contemplated in terms of fairness? I mean, when are we going to see more of a resolution of this issue? You know, the, uh, the impact, I think, is already dramatic on uh, female participation in sport. I had the opportunity mm-hmm. to, to meet a young lady from Connecticut who uh, is continuing in the sport of track and field, but she um, lost probably several potential uh, state championships, finishing third behind two trans athletes mm-hmm. competing in the female category. Um, and in, in two consecutive years um, in, in the sprints. And, um, and so, and she just described how discouraging that was to her. And if this, if she had seen this happening, um, you know, before she was a junior in high school, she confessed to me she might not be a collegiate runner today. She might have chosen something else to devote her time to. Wow. And I think that girls are making those choices now. They're looking for, you know, where can we be treated fairly? And and that's going to that's going to mean a loss of opportunities in in a lot of different sports if if this trend is permitted to continue. Yeah. Um and and unfortunately, it's not a situation where the legal uh 
the, the legal system reacts very quickly and is able to, to make a change on the dime to prevent the, the, the deterioration of, of William, women's sports. I think, mm -hmm. unfortunately, this trend that we're seeing, um, it could be a, a negative one for a long time. Again, unless there's, a, unless there's some leadership. Yeah. Um, at some of the sport governing bodies are going to need to stand up and not pass the buck and not say um, nothing but that trans athletes get to participate. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, not just bind to the cultural talking points, but actually look at right. fundamental fairness, look at this objectively, truthfully, right. and actually be willing to stand up for women and not think that that is somehow discriminatory. You know, you're, you know, you're a bigot or any of these terms. I mean, it's just as false as some of these other notions of like, you know, voter suppression and racism just because we want to have verification of identity at the polls. I mean, you know, some of these things that are the cultural talking points and the punishment that people try to inflict on advocates for truth, especially in a legal forum, is really uh, frustrating, I think, to uh, people like you and I, uh, Bill, who understand that we should be able to advocate for uh, truth, but also for client causes uh, and for things that are fundamentally fair without some of that uh, rhetoric and the false drawbacks that are more uh, culturally influential than Honestly, they're not legally significant, nor should they be. Yeah. You know, sport um, uh, emphasizes courage, and we see mm -hmm. a lot of courage on, on the playing field, and athletes playing hurt, athletes taking on great challenges. We see very little courage in the front office. Mm -hmm. We see very mm -hmm. little courage in the, the sport leadership. And um, it becomes uh, the, the, the gold medal for sport, un unfortunately, has become the gold. It's become money. Mm -hmm. and, and, they, and sport leaders shy away from anything that they think may cause adverse publicity. Mm -hmm. But women are worth standing up for. Mm -hmm. and, and when sport leaders, um, a sport leader finally recognizes that, I think they, they will... Um, that they will ride a cultural tide of individuals that, that care about women's sports. They just need to, to stand up and, and, and be a leader. But right now, yeah. uh, you know, uh, we're, not, we're not seeing that. We're seeing, yeah. uh, unfortunately, people that are kind of uh, afraid of the cancel culture mm -hmm. and, and not willing to, 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 to talk about bright lines and fairness. Right. Well, you know, I mean, it sounds just like government. Um, it sounds just like Congress. And I don't know whether to be, um, you know, kind of like, well, at least then Congress isn't as bad or really discouraged that there are no leaders across the board to see that, you know, politics is just as pervasive in sports as it is in government as it is in the church, frankly. Um, you know, but this is a really fascinating issue. And thanks so much for joining me, um, Bill Bach. I think this has been a really good conversation to give people um, just a different perspective on more of an anti-doping and the fundamental fairness, not just uh, the cultural issues and, you know, so-called identification of transgender uh, athletes versus the true impact on women's sports. So as some of these cases continue to progress in the legislation, um, I hope you'll come back on and share your insights. Thanks so much. Jenna, thanks for bringing the attention to this important issue. Thanks. Thank you for, for the opportunity.